Numbers 24, if you turn to Numbers 24, uh, verses 15 through 18. And a couple of years ago, I discovered something. Our high school girls here are going to go, well, well, duh. But I discovered this for myself just a couple of years ago. And it really upset me when I learned that uh, for high school girls now, if you want to ask a girl to prom or homecoming, you can't just go up and say, uh, will you go to prom with me? You have to come up with some creative way. I mean, it has to be elaborate. It has to be uh, creative. It has to be some grand romantic gesture. In fact, they have a name for it. They call it a promposal. I'm not making this up. And, and I remember, and I've heard some stories of, of promposals. And when I first heard this, my, I had two immediate reactions. My first was, girls today are really setting themselves up for disappointment in life especially disappointment with men, because if you really think that's the way it's going to go, I don't care who you marry, it's not going to be like that. Uh, Number two, I thought I could never make it as a teenage boy today. There's just no way because, all right, we've been friends for a while now, right? Okay, so we've gotten to know each other. I think I can trust you. I can start sharing some of my more embarrassing secrets. So don't judge me, but You've met my wife, right? I mean, I did great. I asked her to marry me in the parking lot of a dollar theater. (laughs) Do not clap for that. No, no, no. That was was so dumb. That was so bad. And if I had a time machine and I could go back, I'd, I'd do it so much differently. I'd ask the same person. But otherwise, it would be so much better, so much different. And, and I, 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 so, so for that reason, if you've got one of those stories where, yeah, I picked her up and, and I had hired a private jet and we flew to New York and took her to the top of the Empire State Building and I, and I, I bribed, you know, Jose, the, the janitor of, of that building across the downtown and he spelled out, Mary, me, Mary, Kate or whatever on, in the windows of that building. If you tell me that story, I'm going to want to punch you in the throat, Okay. <laughs> I, I, I will hate your guts for the rest of your life because it's just wrong. And then you may say, well, why is this so important, especially if you're a man? Why, why the grand romantic gesture? Why is this so necessary? And the truth is, this is true across the board. Men and women, uh, from the, the lady that reads Jane Austen novels to the guy who pulls a bass boat behind his half-ton pickup, everybody deep down inside wants to be loved in an extravagant way. And we may want it manifested in different ways, but we want to know that there's somebody out there that loves us enough to do anything that's necessary, whatever it takes to show the love and and make us feel like we're important. Deep down inside, that's what we all look for, what we're all hoping for. And, And the good news is, I know that my wife knows that I love her. Fortunately, that was a long time ago. I've had a long time since then to show her in very much more practical ways that I love her. I know she knows that. And so whenever we're together and we hear one of those stories about great engagements, you know, she just smiles that sweet smile at me that says, you know, I could have done better than you, right? Um, And the even better news is that someone loves you in an extravagant way and goes to incredible lengths to show it. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to, for the next three weeks, believe it or not, two weeks from today, is Christmas Eve. That's your public service announcement right there if you haven't started shopping. But even more importantly, for the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about the story 
of the wise men or the magi, depending on which Bible translation you read. Those people who came from afar to bring gifts to the Savior. The only ones who did. No Israelites were there, just these foreigners. Who were they? What brought them? The Bible says that they were drawn by a star. In fact, let's read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2 is is where we first hear of these people. It says, After Jesus was born in in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I want to point something out. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that they were kings. They were definitely not kings. They were magi, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Nowhere does it say there were three of them. We three kings of Orient are. Great song, not biblically correct. Nowhere in the Bible does it say they were trying to smoke a rubber cigar. Anybody know that one? (laughs) Yeah, my dad was like your dad then. Um, What were they? The magi. Magi is actually a technical term. It describes a class of people, a class of men who were, we would call them sorcerers. We would call them fortune tellers, astrologers. They were people who, for a living, worked for wealthy men who were able to pay them enough to curse their enemies or bless their families or tell them, your son ought to marry this girl or you ought to plant barley over here and wheat over there. They were consultants in a supernatural sense. And believe it or not, this is not the only place in the Bible that magi appear. In fact, they're, they're found in various places through the Scripture. The, this passage we're going to look at today in Numbers concerns a, mag, a mage of, of sorts, but also in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and 4. We see the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on earth at the time, has a couple of bad dreams, and he consults his magi. Here's my holy men, my wise men, my sorcerers. What are these dreams about? And they were stumped. Daniel came along and he was able to interpret the dreams. In the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, it actually says that if an Israelite wants to be a mage, a sorcerer, a fortune teller, stone them to death. That's an evil practice. And in fact, everywhere in Scripture, aside from Matthew 2, whenever magi are mentioned, they're always mentioned in a negative sense. So it's interesting that these were the people who showed up at Jesus' crib. Now, there's a book that I, I studied in preparing for this series. I read it last Christmas. Um, it's in your worship guide if you want to take a look. This is a, a book that I found fascinating. It's, it's written by a New Testament scholar, Colin Nickel, uh, who does a lot of research. He has a theory about what the star of Bethlehem was, and it is just a theory. And I know that when you come to church, you want to hear fact. You don't want to hear theory. So I'm going to try to separate when I'm talking over this, the course of this series, when I'm, when I'm saying speculation and when I'm saying fact. But I find these, this theory is very revealing. It helps us get down to the bottom of what was happening in Scripture at the time. Because what I don't want you to do is continue thinking of the, the wise men, the magi, in terms of little kids' Christmas pageants or cartoons or movies where they, they wear these crowns and they come in with these long flowing robes and they're standing in front of the stable and there's this, this heavenly light bathing the whole place in, in this holy aura and, and the angels are singing. It wasn't like that. But what was it like? See, these, these people, these magi, lived probably in Persia or Babylon. That's where they usually were. That's, that was the heart of, of, of this practice. 
they, uh, they saw something in the sky. Again, may have been a conjunction of several planets that formed one big light. It, it may have been a supernova as a star prepared to explode and, and, and implode in upon itself. It could have been even a meteor shower, but Nichols' theory is that it was a comet. A comet. And why? Because a comet does a lot of the things that the Scriptures describe this star of Bethlehem doing. And in fact, Nichols' theory is that the comet first appeared, it might have first appeared in a constellation that has been known as Virgo for many, many centuries. In fact, there's a picture of that's the constellation Virgo, and then there's another picture of uh, a picture of a young woman. So this is the the way they imagine that constellation, picturing a, a woman up in the sky. So Nichols' theory is that they saw a star right in the center of that constellation, which to them indicated there's a child inside the womb of a virgin. And if it was a comet and it was heading toward Earth, it would have been getting larger with each passing day. So this was over the course of weeks, maybe even months. They're observing this thing and they're thinking, this is something spectacular. This, is, this means something important. Signs in the sky always meant something important to the ancients. And because of what they were seeing, they may have thought, well, it must be a birth. It's the birth of a child. Now, imagine these men, there could have been two of them, there could have been 20, we don't know how many, talking about this, discussing this. This became the obsession of their lives. Who is this child? Where is he to be born? What is he going to do? Think about this. If you know the Bible, you know that Persia and Babylon were a part of the Middle East where there were a lot of Jews in that time. Because 700 years before, the Jews had been, or 500 years before, the Jews had been exiled to Babylon and then later to Persia. And a lot of them, a lot of their descendants had never come back to Israel once Israel was reestablished. So there were a lot of Jews, even then, living in that part of the world. And either these magi, as they talked about the star, either they may have been overheard by a Jewish person who came and told them about the Jewish Messiah, or else they already knew because they'd heard that the Jews were expecting a great king to arise who would rule over the whole world. Either way, what they saw in the sky drove them to look at the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament. And there they would have seen things like Isaiah 7.14, for the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And they would have seen Isaiah chapter 9 where it says, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And they probably would have seen Numbers 24. And I think the reason this story would have stood out to them is because it was about a mage just like themselves. In fact, somebody even greater, someone much more famous, a man named Balaam. Balaam, a man so famous that archaeologists have found an inscription back in 1967, found an inscription on the inside of a temple, and it said, Balaam the son of Beor is a seer of the gods. It was written 700 years after Balaam lived. So he was famous. This was the guy. If you were wealthy in 1400 BC and you needed someone cursed, you called Balaam. If you needed your fortune told, you called Balaam. For the right price, he would be your man. So Balak, the the king of Moab, needed some help. Balak, the king of Moab, looked out his door one day and saw hundreds of thousands of Hebrews crossing his land. They weren't invading. They were just on their way to the promised land. But this troubled him because he knew who these people were. He'd heard already how their God had destroyed Egypt entirely so that they could be freed from slavery. 
Their economy, their military were completely destroyed. And he thought, that's Egypt, most powerful nation on earth. I'm a little Moab. They're going to they're gonna totally wreck me. And so he called Balaam and said, come and curse the Hebrews for me. Balaam saddled his donkey and was on his way. And God decided to have a little fun with this quote-unquote seer of the gods. Now, this is one of my favorite stories. I, won't, I can't go into detail in the background. We're going to just read a small section of it. But I need to give you some background because you need to know what happened to Balaam on his way to the plains of Moab. Balaam, well, God sent an angel to stop Balaam, to stand in his way. So here's an angel, sword drawn, mighty, furious. Balaam can't see the angel, but the donkey can. And so the donkey stops quite naturally. And Balaam beats his donkey to make him go again. And then the angel reappears a little bit later as Balaam is, is going down this lane with, with walls on either side. And the donkey, trying to get away, presses Balaam's foot against the wall, basically crushes his ankle. And Balaam, again, beats the donkey. Now, just as an aside, I've never beaten a donkey, but I understand that mentality. I come from a long line of men who get irrationally angry at animals and inanimate objects. My grandfather was one of the godliest people I've ever known. He was a farmer and rancher, but he also had quite a temper with his animals. And I, I can remember seeing him many times just get red in the face and angry and yell and scream as if they were human. Uh, and people who knew my grandpa before I was alive used to tell me that once one of his bulls got out of its pasture and into a neighbor's pasture and, and they saw him go into that pasture with a, a bucket of feed in one hand and a rifle in the other. <laughs> and, and so grandpa was like, okay, either the bull's coming home or we're going to have a barbecue right here. And I get that because I've never, like I said, never beaten a donkey, never shot a bull, but I've had some interesting conversations with my weed eater um, and conversations you wouldn't think a preacher is capable of. But anyway, um, that's just by way of confession. So here's Balaam beating his donkey and suddenly the donkey turns and speaks. Now I know, I know. You're like, wait a second, this is, a, is this Grimm's fairy tales? No, this is Scripture. This actually happened. And if you're like, no way a donkey talked, think about it for just a moment. We're here today because we believe that there is a God who created the entire universe with a spoken word. If that's true, and I think we all agree it is, it would not be any trouble at all for him to put words in the mouth of a donkey. And he did. Bible doesn't tell us how the donkey sounded. Did it sound like Forrest Gump? Did it sound like Eddie Murphy? We don't know. But the donkey spoke and said, why are you beating me? And Balaam was so angry, he spoke back. He said, I'm beating you because you're embarrassing me. If I had a sword in my hand instead of a whip, you'd be dead right now. And the donkey said, hey, I've been your donkey a long time, right? Have I ever done this before? And Balaam says, you got a point. Balaam lost the, ang the argument. I mean, Balaam lost the argument with the donkey. And, and right then, God chooses to reveal the angel. The angel appears to Balaam for the first time. And he realizes this donkey just saved my life. And he is entirely humbled. He starts off the story majestic and fearsome and respected all throughout the world. And now he's just lost an argument to a donkey and he is completely humbled and he's going to do whatever God tells him. Because otherwise he's going to die. 
And so Balaam goes and meets with Balak just like it was arranged, and I can't get into it. It's a very amusing story. I find it funny at least, where Balak keeps taking him to different locations saying, hey, try to, try to curse the Israelites from here. And Balaam's like, you can take me wherever you want to. I'm not cursing anybody because God has told me what to say. And Balak gets more and more frustrated. Finally, on the last attempt, here is what Balaam says. And we'll pick it up with verse 15. Then he spoke his message. And keep in mind, here's the hundreds of thousands of Israelites before him. He and Balak are standing up on top of a mountain. He says, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Ser, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. Balak, the king of Moab, was displeased with the service he received from his hired hand. And Balaam did not get his hefty fee that day. And the Israelites were not cursed. But they heard of Balaam's words and they wrote them down in the book of Numbers and they began to treasure them. And so in, in verse 17, when Balaam said, a star will arise and a scepter will come out of Israel, they began to say, that's the deliverer we're waiting for. Even this pagan magician, even he knows that God is someday going to send us a king who will rule everything, who will take care of us, who will redeem us, who will rescue us. This was the Messiah they were awaiting. Now imagine 1,400 years later, here's these magi in Persia or Babylon reading this for the first time and saying, hey, a guy just like us, a millennia and a half ago, saw this coming. All these gears start to mesh in their minds. What they're seeing in the sky starts to mesh with what they're reading on the page and everything's starting to fall into place. In fact, you think about it, if, if Nicola is right and, it, and this thing was a, a comet, It'd be growing larger as it's coming closer and closer to earth. And then as it neared the earth, it would turn and start to travel perpendicular to our planet. And when, when comets do that, they, they have a tail. In fact, there's a picture uh, of a comet. And, and when you look at a comet in that light, doesn't it sort of look like a scepter? A star and a scepter, a king's scepter. And, and Nichols' theory is that if it, if it was in the constellation Virgo, it would be traveling now, perhaps downward, through what looked like the birth canal of the Virgin. And maybe at some point it emerged out of the other end. And they said, aha, that means the baby's born. This child has been born in Israel. We need to get there. And once they realized that, they packed their bags, told their secretaries, hold our calls. We'll be back in a few months. And off they traveled on a, on a voyage that would take several weeks at most, at least. Now again, again, a lot of that is theory, but here's what we know for sure. Here's what we know for certain. God put something into the sky that was so un, unforeseen, so spectacular, that people who studied the stars for a living people who had no faith in the God of Israel, no concern for Israel at all, dropped everything. Their lucrative careers, their relationships, everything. 
and traveled hundreds of miles, not knowing what they would find or how they would find it. Just knowing that somewhere out there is what we've been looking for. God has put it in the sky and we want to see and we want to worship. And ultimately, the story ends with worship. It doesn't end with curiosity. It doesn't end with scientific exploration. It ends with worship. Salvation. Now, why would God do this? Why would God go to all this trouble? There were religious leaders galore in Jerusalem, which was five miles from Bethlehem. Why did God do something spectacular like this? I think for the same reason He gave the prophecy back in Numbers through a pagan magician. This is God going out of His way, bending over backwards to say, hey, I'm doing this for you. This is God's promposal, so to speak. This is Him doing an elaborate gesture. This is Him doing something sensational to say, this is how much you mean to me. This is no ordinary thing. This is your salvation. You are loved. This is God's extravagant love for you. And you might be sitting there saying, great story, but I don't feel loved in an extravagant way. I'm here because I believe, I trust in God, I'm thankful for Jesus, but you know, if God could keep Balaam from cursing the Israelites, if God could engineer astronomical phenomena to, to draw people from hundreds of miles away, then why... Why isn't my disease getting any better? Why isn't my body healing? Why isn't my spouse treating me differently? Why aren't my kids making better choices? Why am I still not able to pay these bills? Why, why is this high and mighty person who did me wrong still high and mighty instead of brought down low? Why are, are all my prayers just bouncing off the ceiling and none of them are coming true? Why can't I see? God's extravagant love in some practical way. And the truth is, I'm, I'm different than Balaam. I don't see myself as a seer of God. I don't think that I know the answers to all questions. In fact, I know I don't. And the older I get, the more I know I don't know. And I can't tell you why God does or does not do what He does or does not do. I can't even answer those questions in my own life. My experience says that Ultimately, I find the answers, but it's never as soon as I want them. But here's what I do know. Here's what I can say to you for sure. The one who created the whole universe, the one who was infinitely powerful and eternally privileged against all logic, against all reason, when he did not have to, gave himself up for us put on human flesh, became not just a baby, but an unborn fetus, a tiny, tiny little child in his mother's womb that slowly developed over time. Can anything be more vulnerable? Was born in a natural human way, coming through a birth canal just like you and I did, emerging helpless and naked and, and poor in a part of the world which even today, if we spent a week there, we'd say, man, this is great, but I'm glad I don't live here lived in poverty with parents who weren't married when he was born. And we know the truth of that, but I guarantee you people in Nazareth didn't. They didn't believe the story of the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary. Grew up, I'm sure, with questions about his parentage. Grew up in poverty. Grew up to become a, a blue-collar man. 
who worked with his hands daily, who made very little, like everybody else, was one, one mistimed freeze from starving to death, was one plague away from dying young. I mean, this man lived on the edge. And then when he was around 33, gave up even that and became just a wandering, homeless teacher of truth. A choice that was just as bizarre back then as it would be today if I did it. And not only that, when his enemies conspired to kill him and it became known to him, he didn't run away. He didn't alert the authorities. Of course, the authorities were the ones that wanted him dead. He didn't fight back. He didn't defend himself. He didn't proclaim his innocence. He walked willingly, joyfully into the lion's mouth delivered himself into the hands of his enemies. And so when the one who had enough power to snap his fingers and create a universe, let weak and stupid men kill him in the most painful and humiliating way any of us can imagine, he wasn't a helpless victim. He was a joyful Savior. He was doing what he came to do. Because he knew that was the only way you and I could be saved, could be rescued. Because we deserve death, He would take that death upon Himself. Because we deserved hell, He would experience hell on earth. He did it for you. And I love what the Scriptures say about it. There's so much. I just want to give you two. Colossians 2 verse 14. Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So it says at the cross where it looked like Jesus was defeated, he was actually defeating our enemies once and for all. But verse 14, which I didn't think to put on PowerPoint, tells us that when, we, when he was crucified, our sins were crucified too. The list of all our sins was nailed to the cross alongside him. And He rose from the dead and it stayed in the ground. And even better, there's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Him, He became our sin so that we could become His righteousness. No one's ever loved you that way. No one ever will. Ladies, there's not a man on this earth who will love you like that. Men, there's not a woman on earth who can do that for you. There's not a career path. There's not an accomplishment. There's not an experience. There's not a drug. There's not a place you can go. There's not a possession you can buy that will die for your sins and rescue your soul and deliver you into eternal and abundant life and forgiveness and joy and purpose and everything you were meant to have. No one and nothing will ever love you that way. But He did and He does. And that means two things. It means no matter what you're going through, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. Even when all the stuff doesn't seem to add up. Even when you're like, well, it doesn't seem like He loves me because this is going wrong or this isn't going right. You can trust Him. Just like when you were a kid, if you had a good mom and dad like I did when you were a kid and they took you to the doctor for your immunizations and you're like, why on earth is my mom making me sit still while this guy pokes me with this needle? But you didn't think to yourself, well, obviously mom wants me to die. No, you thought, I don't like this, but mom says I need to, so I guess I better do it. I'm going to cry and I'm going to yell and I'm going to guilt trip her into buying me ice cream afterwards, but I'd still, I know she loves me. 
And you can say, I don't know why this is happening, but Jesus died for me. If this wasn't necessary in some way, if this wasn't somehow part of the greater plan, He wouldn't let me suffer right now. You can trust Him. And secondly, even if you lose everything else, you've still got that. Nothing can take that away from you. Even even if my worst nightmares come true, even if none of my dreams come true, I've still got the best thing of all. I've still got a relationship with the God who made me. I've still got a purpose for my life. I've I've still got the, the knowledge that there's a process going on inside my soul through the Holy Spirit that's making me somebody greater than I otherwise would be. Somebody who's ultimately going to be perfect. Not there yet. Y'all know that by now. But on the way, I've got eternal life set up for me in a place where everything is the way that it ought to be. A perfect world in a perfect body, which I don't yet possess, as you can tell, ruled by a perfect Savior. I've got all of that, even if everything else is gone. And nobody and nothing can take it away. And so do you, because of Him. So think about the fact that you are extravagantly loved. And if you're struggling with anything, turn it over to Him. Trust Him. If you haven't received that love yet, call on His name and say, I I need that. I've been searching for something and I don't yet have it. And for the rest of us. Remember those names we posted on those bulletin boards a couple of weeks ago? Remember those people around us who don't yet know Christ? Jesus loves them just as extravagantly. Just as much. And it's through us that they'll know that.